Because I don't think this passage is super clear. And I'll give you an example here. I want to clarify what I was talking about. I believe that we've specifically been talking about Jesus' glorification when he's going to be glorified in his death. Look at uh, Luke 7, excuse me, John 17, 1. It's this whole long section into 17. 17 is more his prayer. But 17, 1, he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, and your son may glorify you. And we've looked at how this hour was coming. This hour is coming. Now the hour has come. He will be glorified when he's lifted up, when he is crucified. Um, and we've been reading that. This is what's been a little confusing because he says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. Is his death going to the Father? What do you think about it? Where are you answer? Two things he says on the cross that sounds like, yes. We are not given a lot of details. There's actually going to be a movie coming out, uh, Passion of the Christ, Part 2, where it talks about Jesus in the in-between days of where he went to Hades and all this stuff, and it's all just speculation. But what did he say on the cross? Two things. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then at the very end, when he breathes his last, does he just go into an abyss? I send my spirit into nothing. To, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a sense in which Jesus is committing himself to the Father in his death. Right? However, look at 17.4. Look at 17.4. We just talked about the glorification of him in his death. But then 17.4, excuse me, 17.5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Does Jesus have this glory before the world ever was, right at his death? No. That will be when he returns to heaven, and he ascends to heaven, and he will be glorified and reigning as king. That's what the apostles are emphasizing throughout the book of Acts, that he died, he was raised, and there's another part of that complete package. He was exalted. He is at the right hand of the Father. So that's why I'm saying if we try to single these things out, it feels a little funky to us because they really are a, a, a connected idea. Jesus will receive glory when he's sitting on the throne. He's going to give the Spirit in that time because of that death. And so I believe the transition, you know, you can say it's both. But the transition to when he's actually going to ascend happens later in 16, uh, beginning in verse 25. It sounds much more specific of coming to the earth, leaving the earth. Um, and so we can look at that uh, a little bit later. But I just, I just want to try to clarify a little bit of that with you, that if we try to single one of them out, they're part of a package. And so it feels awkward to us, and that's why it sounds similar. The prophets did this all the time. Dual fulfillment. They talk about returning to Babylon, but it sounds something greater. Because it is going to be greater in the return, the exodus out of sin is the idea in the prophets. Um, so, let's talk about um, 25, sorry, do you have any questions on that? Like I said, it is, it's a little choppy as we go through here. And I was trying to be as clear as I could last week, so I appreciate your patience with me on that. Okay, all right, 25 through 31, 
of John chapter 14 is where we left off. And I named this in our reading, uh, the Spirit's representation of Jesus. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a person, not an it, but he is used even in this, uh, these passages, um, is spoken a lot about through chapter 16. So instead of stopping at every single point, uh, when we go through and talk about the Spirit, I'm going to try to front load some things, some understandings, so that when we look at these other passages, then we, okay, we understand what he's talking about here. So, let's talk about the Spirit. Uh, look at uh, John um, 14, there again, in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, or Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. Okay. So, why not tell them the Spirit is coming like the Old Testament prophets talked about? That he would come and he would give life to dead Israel. He would resurrect them in Ezekiel. Um, that's what he's going to be doing with the new David and the new covenant in Ezekiel. Things will be great because he's going to bring you this promise of the forgiveness of sins, to have union with him, a new heart, a new spirit, all of these things. And when you see that in Acts 2.38, the promise is to you, to your children. John 7, right? John 7. Um, I don't want to misquote it. John 7 and verse 37 if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It says this, he spoke concerning the spirit that was going to come after he was glorified. Why didn't he just say that to them? Why didn't he just say, you know, the spirit's coming and you're going to have life. You're going to have this river of living water. It's for everybody. And I'm so excited for that. Why doesn't he say that to them? Yes, yes. Another way of putting it, Dean said it great. Another way of putting it is, they are his unique representatives. They are going to represent Jesus moving forward, the 11, and then we're going to add, add another one we just read in Acts 1 in the first worship service. Um, but what does he say then? So they're his unique representatives. He doesn't talk about all the prophets said. He talks specifically about something that they're going to have. What does he say the Spirit will do for them? We read it. Okay? Um, he will teach you all things. Now, over in 16.13, he says the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Okay? That's the idea. The things there is not like, you know, geometry. But it's truth. Okay? So he will give them all things, teach them all things. Did you notice, too? He will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. The apostles never had to take notes on what Jesus said. Now they might have, but up in, you know, they didn't know about all this yet. But what I'm saying is, he re what he revealed and said to them was new information. They couldn't just find a, a book, chapter, verse report. So what had to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit later, 
would bring to their remembrance everything that he said. Just a side note. You ever heard somebody pray for a ready recollection? This is the only reference that you could find in Scripture about that. And who's it for? Yeah, the apostles. You know, they were given this gift that they would immediately be able to say exactly what Jesus said without any study or prior understanding of, or prior um, note-taking in that. The rest of us, though, have to work at it. We have to study hard. We have to think about these things and take notes. Um, and then, what is the other thing? He's going to teach them all things. Has Jesus delivered everything he wanted to say yet? This is kind of cheating, because it wasn't in the reading schedule. But 16.12 says, I have a lot to say to you, but I can't say it to you yet. You're not ready for it. Okay, so in that context, I'm going to send him, and he will guide you into all truth. Think about it. I mean, think about it. Were they ready for all the instructions that were going to be given about the New Testament church at this point? All the things that you see throughout the epistles of the guidance of the local church and how it functions and how... They weren't ready for that. So it makes sense, right? This is in prospect. This is looking forward. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Dean just brought up the, the emotional context of this, which we do need to keep in mind. Amen. That it is, uh, it is a volatile time for them, and they're not sure what's going on as far as what's really going to transpire, and then the actual death itself is not just an easy, simple thing. Um, in fact, strike the shepherd, they'll flee, as he ends this talk in the end of 16. Um, I'll just say, though, uh, he will instruct them for 40 days after he raises from the dead, but even then, the Spirit, as he's saying, will guide them into more. All true. Um, so, yes? Well, I would like to talk about the word all. Yes, sir. It's not necessarily meaning everything completely at this time or I think it's an ongoing process that all things come to them. That's why he said the, the comforter and why he didn't tell them Yeah. As Paul did, he got new things. And then things happen to mirror the 
Yeah. So, yeah. So, I just wanted to say something about the word all there. It's not necessarily Poof. completely encompassing yeah. what's going on here. This is the fullness of time. This is the time when they're going to be starting out. And that's the important thing is to start. Right. Uh, they're not finishing up Right, yeah. Um, so, so just to kind of summarize Mike's comment, it's not that they will just poof be like Solomon had all wisdom, you know, and then poof, they're going to know all truth like that. But you see in the New Testament, same God as the Old Testament, Revelation is progressive. There's not everything given in Exodus. You've got to keep reading. Not everything is given in Exodus. You've got to keep reading they have the progression of revelation, and so uh, well, well noted there. Um, think about this. This is a particular relationship that he's bestowing upon them to be his representatives. What would be evidence to you in the New Testament, in the New Testament, that this isn't promised to every single Christian? What was the evidence for that? That every single Christian, and this is very commonly believed, that they kind of have God with them and he will give them all truth. He will guide them into all truth. Sometimes that's prayed. Um, and when they read, maybe God will insert some things. What, what's some evidence? Yes, sir. One of the first things to consider is looking at the context where who's, who's speaking, who's in the presence, yeah. and, and what all is said. Um, in, in, in the recent passages we have been studying, it has been the 12 and then the 11. Yeah, yeah so uh, Brady just said immediate context here. Who is he talking to? Very good. Another thing, uh, they were told that they could lay hands on people. Okay. And if they would receive uh, portions of the Spirit as gifts, not, not that they would continue. When we, it says that when the fullness of everything comes, then the gifts would disappear. Okay. So it's not that, that, that they kept doing that, and that was given to the 12, nobody else could do that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at today's world, they're giving out gifts pretty regularly. Okay. Yeah, so one of the things, um, if you're not familiar with the beginning of Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, it's that idea of elementary teachings of Christ, repentance and judgment to come, and, and resurrection of the dead, and then it says, the laying on hands. That is an elementary teaching in the New Testament. Why is it elementary teaching? Because it's so critical to how this is going to be passed along. That the apostles, as we learn, they are the ones who will pass on spiritual gifts. Why would God make people have to come through the apostles? Think about what their purpose is again. They are the ambassadors. They are the representatives of Jesus. If you don't receive them, you don't receive me. You don't receive the Father. Over and over again, he teaches that. So everything must be tied back to his representatives. That's the way he's planned this. Um, what about another one? Any other thoughts you had about why this, there's, there's evidence that it's not guaranteed to everybody to have this particular empowerment? Simon the Sorcerer. Okay. He wanted yeah. to buy the gift. Yeah, he wanted to buy it. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to buy it and, and you know... The apostles told another. Right. You can't buy it. You... Um, think about this. What's going on in 1 Corinthians? You remember how several points in that book he says, 
Now concerning. Now concerning. They had to write him questions to answer as an apostle. If they just had all truth, they didn't need that. They didn't need to ask any apostle for that. But the apostles were delivering these truths to the church. They were copying it, and they were writing it down. Um, so I just want to say that they had miraculous, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, they had all these gifts, but they still had to write an apostle to ask some of these questions. The truth hadn't yet been recorded, as Mike pointed out, through the apostles and the prophets, um, but it was coming together. So why did we get off track on this? Let me explain as best I can. We, we mix the signs of the Spirit, the signs of the Spirit, with the Spirit's primary work. It's as strong of a replacement as smoke and fire. <coughs> Say, well, smoke's just like fire. No, it's not. No, smoke comes from fire. And I want to I give a caution about this. Lexicons, Greek words. Greek words are just like any other words, any other language. They're bound by context. They might mean something like um, country. What, what am I saying when I say country? I could be saying a place, I could be saying music. They might, they might mean something in a particular context, but you can't just take that and plug it in every single word. That you, that you every place that you can find. Okay, so the writer intends them to mean something, particularly in the context. Context determines usage, not just a bland definition. And this is what it means every single time we look at it. We're going to get in trouble if we do that. So be careful about that. Let me give you an example. Acts two thirty eight, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Same phrase, gift of the Holy Spirit is given to those who were baptized. What it says, you will see the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, when the Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they speak in tongues, what is it said about what happened there? It is called the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, every time it says that, that's what it means. It means the exact same thing. So what it means then in Acts 10 is that they were immediately saved. You buying that? No. Same thing with filled with the Spirit. There's several other situations here, but Spirit one is um, sometimes complex. For instance, filled with the Spirit, Mary was filled with the Spirit, and she spoke. She prophesied. Zechariah prophesied. Ephesians 5.18, you're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Wait a minute, I have to prophesy? You see the difference there? It's the exact same phrase. Well, you know, the definition always means this. No. Context determines meaning. So we need to be careful about that. So what I'm saying here is what we're talking about is the primary work that the Spirit would do for Israel is to renew them and give them life, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, a way to God that they did not have before. John 3 talks about that. Born of the Spirit. John 7 that we read talks about that. But what Jesus is talking about here is the secondary work of the Spirit, the smoke. It's the signs that he was there. It's the signs proving that he is, among the twelve apostles, that he is doing his work in the new covenant, which was not really clear. Just want to point this out. 
Not super clear in the prophets about how he was going to do that, that he could have 12. But has God ever used 12 representatives to the world? The 12 gods. So here he has 12 men that go out. Um, so, so I want to point that out. Joel 2's fulfillment in Acts 2 is to show us that the age of the Spirit is here. And now there's forgiveness. There's a way to God. He's poured out His Spirit. We can receive the new covenant. But what it's not there to show us, this is where our friends get confused, and sometimes we do. It's not there to show us this is exactly what the Spirit does. This is a sliver of what the Spirit does. It's a sliver. It is the outward to show what's going on in the invisible. Same thing when he falls upon the Gentiles. In chapter 10 of Acts, it's to prove, without a doubt, the invisible reality of what? Couldn't see it. But what was the invisible reality? God is going to accept the Gentiles. It's a plan all the way along. Yes. And so that's Peter's conclusion. Well, how in the world can we forbid water then? God showed to us they are approved. God is showing the, the Israelites who would obey are approved as well in Acts 2. Um, and if you think that what I'm trying to say is not a big deal, like, wow, Austin's on his soapbox. I'm not. I'm telling you, this is huge. There are literally millions of people right now that are waiting to see if they're saved because they're waiting for the gift of the Spirit to speak in tongues. You see how, we, how you can get confused in that if you think Acts 2 and Joel, Joel, Joel's prophecy there is only about all that the Spirit will do. It's not true. Then that's all you're going to think. When, Well, how do I know if I'm forgiven? Well, I've got to speak in tongues. Well, I haven't speak, spoken in tongues yet, so God hasn't saved me with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a, we're, we're combining all of these different things that just aren't so. Um, so, all we need to do is obey Jesus' instructions, and he'll give you the gift that was promised all the way along of access to God that they did not um, surely have, and he would create a new people, and he would dwell among them. Questions or comments on uh, 25 through 31? I didn't cover everything because there's a lot there, but questions or comments as you read or thoughts on it? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, very good. Brent, um, I'm not going to try to summarize all that because it was great, um, and I'll, I'll mess it up. 
But basically, uh, that God is, is inviting them to trust in Him. They might not know all of these things, but it will come. And the same is for us, in that we won't know everything, and the secret things belong to the Lord at Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, and if we focus on speculations, Paul, Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, it will overthrow the faith of people. Um, so we don't want to focus on speculations. Uh, there's a hand. Yeah, Trevor? said he guarantees them peace. You can count on it. Um, I just had my notes if somebody brought that up. That's shalom. And it's a greeting. And it's also a goodbye. I'm going to give you peace and I'm leaving with peace. Um, and if you look at that word used about the kingdom to come, it's all over <coughs> the prophets that it would be a great time of peace and safety. There would be no enemies. Um, and so this is, this is keying in on some of those things as you look into that. Um, yes, sir? I'm sorry. Just, I don't feel like I finished my thought very well. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll forgive you. No, it's, yeah. It's all <laughs> so Jesus is the anointed, you know, Messiah, anointed one, and the only way they understand how a king becomes a king is through conquering yeah. kingdoms. Yeah. And so it's understandable why the apostles wouldn't understand that this is a whole new way right. of Messiah. Right, right. Uh, just, just to summarize that, the king becomes a king through conquering, and Jesus was not going to do that. He's going to have a very different conquering. He's going to conquer the world, um, and uh, he's going to overcome the world, the enemy. Um, <clears throat> so, let's look at uh, chapter 15, and 1 through 8 in this section uh, of your reading, uh, Jesus starts with that uh, I am the true vine. I just want to say that um, this has a little section break for you, but really, 1 through 8 are, uh, and 9 through 16 are very tied together. Both of them talk about remaining. Both of them talk about uh, remaining in my love. Uh, excuse me, remain in the vine, remain in my love. Both mention bearing fruit. Both talk about fruitness, fruitfulness with prayer. And so you could even say that 1 through 8 is a metaphor, and 9 through 16 he ex- is explaining it. Um, so vines bear fruit, right? That's what they do. 
Who was a vine in the Old Testament? Particularly Israel was, uh, was a vine. Um, and every time, what's unique about this, if you go look, search about the picture of a vine, every time Israel is pictured as a vine, it's pictured as fruitless. They're not having fruit on it. Ezekiel 15 is a great, there's an entire chapter on it. Um, but Jesus, what does he say about him, himself? He's a true vine. And does he have fruit? Yeah, he's going to bear fruit. He will bear fruit to God. Um, think of Israel as a whole. You know, they were God's people involuntarily. Born of flesh, as, as John 1 talks about. Born, not born of God, but born of the flesh. Um, they just happened to be God's people because they were born. But Jesus is going to bear fruit to God. He will have people abide in him and will bear much fruit. And if they don't bear the fruit, what's God, the gardener, husband, and however your translation has it, what's God the Father in you? He's going to cut them off and they will be burned. He will take us off the vine. Let me ask you just kind of a thing to think about for us. Is that something you can see physically? No, when God takes someone off the vine and throws them in the fire. Can you really see that with physical eyes? Can someone be on the roll and everybody think they are faithful and they're faithful in their attendance, but God says, you're not a part of Jesus? Can that happen? What about, what about Diotrephes, how when yeah. John writes to him and says, hey, you're not doing God's authority. You're slandering the people that are wanting to come into your house. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what immediately made me think of. Right, right. Um, so I don't know everybody, the way they felt about Diotrephes. Um, but yes, he was, he was part of the church there locally, but was he on the vine? You know, everybody here could approve of me. But what does God think? That's more important, way more important than what anybody else would say in approval or disapproval. Yes, sir? Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And it says, and, uh, verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you to part from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yeah. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, very scary passage. That uh, and that's 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 in the church age. Uh, they're casting out demons. They're doing all of these things, and still I don't know. I don't know anything about you because you are wa- working lawlessness, as in you're working without word, without authority. You haven't followed me. You're not a part of me. Now, <clears throat> um, this also means think about it. In this new relationship that he has started, we're not going to be able to claim Jesus. Like they claimed Abraham. Well, Abraham's our father. We can't say, well, you know, I follow Jesus. What does that do for you? Nothing. You can say that. But what do you need to be doing? Bearing fruit. Then you're with Jesus. If you're not bearing fruit, then he doesn't know you. Um, Now, how does God think about this? How powerful, first of all, sorry, let let me back up. First question, 
How powerful is the branch in this story that comes off of the vine? Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4, and verse 5. How powerful is this branch? Power still comes from the vine. Straight out of the vine. Yeah. Yeah. Without me, you can do nothing. You're not attached to the vine. You're useless. It is useless. It will not bear fruit. Um, But then, how does God treat the branches that are bearing fruit in this parable, per se? Verse 2. Purge is another word. Prune. Um, cut. Uh, how will God do that? If you're bearing fruit for him, how will he prune you? Which if you're familiar with, I'm not going to get into all the technicalities because I can't. But uh, if you're, you're pruning something, you're trying to cut away dead things so that it can grow and be productive where it is living. So how might God be pruning the branch? When he removes the fruit, it's growing so that other fruit is growing in its place too. Okay. That's, that's the way the, the grapevines are. You take the grapes that are there away, and new ones propagate. And then they take that, new ones propagate. Yeah, that's and a good point. They've got, it, it, it gets it set up where there's always something growing and getting ready to take it Um, sprouts in our lives 
that aren't necessarily bearing fruit for the Lord that God may need to prune off so that we can be more productive for His kingdom. Yeah, so there might be some sprouts or some um, shoots in our life, as Colin said, that are not productive, and God needs to trim those back, cut them off, um, so that you can continue to bear fruit. Let's say a parallel, looks like in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Uh, clean them, trim them, useful, uh, this idea that through the word that we're growing and we're maturing in that way, um, and that's going to be removing sin. But also I think there is plenty of evidence for the crucible of suffering. First uh, Peter 4.1, if you've suffered, you've, sinned from, you've ceased from sin. If you continue in that, um, you don't want to sin anymore because you know what it's like to suffer. So you, you are growing in that way that God will use. Yes, sir? Right there, as you were talking about earlier, you know, So God can use us, but if we take it in our own hands, as, as Mike was saying, we're, you know, we're going to be the gardeners and we're going to make sure to cut back some people. Um, that, that's not the right attitude. Any other thoughts or comments down in verse 8? Discipline of the Lord. Um, if we are disciplined, Hebrews 12.10 says, it's for our good to share in His holiness. So you know, there's going to be some challenges in our life that will um, continue uh, to help us stay in Him. I'll just say just quickly on that, since we're on that topic about fruit. Sometimes people say that fruit is souls for Jesus. I'm not saying that that, that doesn't include it, but that's an oversimplification of, of what he's saying here. And if you don't bring somebody to Jesus, well, then you're not in the Bible. It's an oversimplification. Uh, if you look at passages like uh, uh, Philippians 1, Ephesians 5, talk about fruits of righteousness or fruits of light. 
That's more of what he's talking about. If you have the fruit of God, you're showing that, he, that he's working through you in your life, yeah, you're going to talk to people about the Lord. But the idea that the fruit must mean I brought somebody specifically, I think that's just an oversimplification of this. Now, for them, particularly in their context, he says they, he wants them to bear fruit. What we've talked about before is it's voluntary, right? He's not made them obey him. He's asking them, if you love me, obey me. So for them, there is a sense in which their, their core mission is to go out and to spread the gospel. Um, but I think the training of the twelve throughout the gospels will show us Jesus is very concerned about their heart. Very concerned about them causing other people to stumble. Yes? Uh, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Yeah. Fruit of the Spirit is also a great, a great passage to look at in that as well. Um, look at 9 through 12, or 9 through 17. Verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Again, we're not talking about just keeping a law code perfectly. We're talking about loving God with all of our hearts. The Father loves Jesus. Jesus loves his Father. They exist in love. Jesus declared the Father to us. So we know the heart of the Father. We know that he's the kind of father who sits next to a woman at the well, who's had five husbands. We know the heart of the father, that he would go and sit with the chief tax collectors and the sinners. That he would try to teach the Pharisees, even though they were bent against him. We know the heart of the father because we've seen Jesus. But how do we abide in his love in verse 10? Keeping his commandments, right? Abide in me, remember, one through eight, but now it's abide in my love, and we know that we are for keeping his commandments. A good word there is, is committed, commitment. If I'm committed to him, I'll do what he says. And so Jesus is set forth in John over and over again as the model of submission. I mean, it is four, chapter 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, over and over again. What the Father tells me, I will do. I've submitted to Him. So now He's asking, if you love me, you'll submit to me. You'll stay in my love. It's a motivator, and it's the attribute of the disciple of God. We cannot say we love God, and we don't take His word seriously, and we don't apply it, and try to help change our hearts. We cannot say that we love God. Obedience, right? But not just obedience for obedience's sake. Obedience because we love him. Just like you would want to do something for your dad or your mom if you had that relationship. It's not because, well, you know, I was born to them. But I love them and I want to help them if I can. That's right. That's right. This is the, this is the discipleship that he is, is setting for us. In verse 12, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, my is underscored here. This is kind of referenced back in chapter 13, but bore out a little bit more. No one before this point in history could have loved as Jesus loved because they hadn't seen what he was going to do. What was he going to do, verse 13? Give his life. Lay down his life. 
1 John 3.16 will tell us that there's no greater love than if you lay down your life for the brother, for the brethren. That, that's a good point where you say he laid it down. He wasn't taken from him. Yes, back in John 10. A lot of people think he was put on the cross and died. Jesus, Jesus bears uh, the ultimate standard of love, and it's a new standard of love that we hadn't seen before for your neighbor. And then there's, their relationship is changing. You know, servants, they don't have the inside scoop of what the Father is doing in 1617. But it kind of seems to be talking about from now on as in moving forward when all of this happens, not necessarily literally that moment. Remember, we're just hours from him being portrayed, crucified, um, and so we'll see that also 1612 and 1625, this idea that it's, it's, it's here, and it's not quite here, but it's here. Um, and uh, any thoughts or questions down to 17? Gentile mob in, in Ephesus over money. 
Uh, it's just over and over again we see the world rejecting them. But then you see kind of the they of the world gets a little bit more specific, it seems, in this text. Um, verse 21, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Who has seen his works so far gone and has rejected him? The Jews, right? That's, that's the, really the context that he brings it more specific here. Now, is it all the Jews? No. But it was the Jews of what? What, what kind of Jews were they? They were of the world. They did not know the Father. The Jews that were particularly under the ruler of this world, remember he says to them in 8.23, I'm from above, but you're from below. You're from this world. The people who are rejecting him. In verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. This goes back to chapter 9, after the blind man. He says, the reason why they have sin is because they say, I can see. And their sin remains. They were prideful, those who rejected Jesus. And so they have no excuse. Jesus has come, he has taught, and he has had works in verse 24. The teaching and the works will accuse them and will judge them. All right, uh, we will begin um, there in uh, 26 the next time.